Section 32. The Spirit of the Army. Part 1. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Hirsch. As pointed out in the foregoing chapter, the general was always anxious to make clear to all and to avoid the possibility of a continuance of the organization and a routine of effort without the spirit in which the work has been begun. We could not better describe that spirit than he did in the following address to his officers gathered around him in London in 1904. He pictured to them the idea of seven spirits sent out from heaven to possess the soul of every officer, and thus described the action of two of them. THE SPIRIT OF LIFE We begin with the good spirit, the spirit of life. What did he say? What were the words he brought to us from the throne? Let me repeat them. O oh, officers, officers, I am one of the seven spirits whom John saw. I travel up and down the earth on special errands of mercy. I am come from him that sitteth on the throne and reigneth for ever and ever, to tell you that if you are going to succeed in your life and death struggle for God and man, the first thing you must possess in all its full and rich maturity, is the spirit of divine life. Now, before I go to the direct consideration of this message, let me have a word or two about life itself. Life, as you know, is the opposite principle to death. To be alive is to possess an inward force, capable of action without any outside assistance. For instance, Anything that has in it the principle by which it is able to act in some way, independent of the will of any other thing or creature outside of itself, may be said to be alive. It has in it the principle of life. This principle of life is the mainspring and glory of God's universe. We have it in different forms in this world. For instance, we have material life. There is living and dead water. There is living and dead earth. Then there is vegetable life. In the fields and woods and gardens, you have living trees and flowers and seeds. Then there is animal life. Only think of the variety and usefulness and instinctive skill of unnumbered members of the animal world. Then, rising higher in the scale of being, you have human life. Every man, woman, and child possesses, as it were, a trinity of existence, namely physical life, mental life, and soul life, each being a marvel in itself. Then rising higher still we have a life more important, and bringing more glory to God than any of the other forms that I have noticed, and that is spiritual life. On this spiritual life let me make one or two remarks. Spiritual life is divine in its origin. It is a creation of the Holy Spirit. I need not dwell on this truth. Jesus Christ was at great trouble to teach it. Marvel not, he said, ye must be born again. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. You have gone through this experience yourselves. You must insist on it in your people. Spiritual life proceeds from God. It can be obtained in no other way. 
Spiritual life not only proceeds from God, but partakes of the nature of God. We see this principle, that the life imparted partakes of the nature of the author of being that imparts it, illustrated around us in every direction. The tree partakes of the nature of the tree from which it is derived. The animal partakes of the nature of the creature that it begets. The child partakes of the nature of its parents. So the soul, born of God, will possess the nature of its author. Its life will be divine. This is a mystery. We cannot understand it, but the Apostle distinctly affirms it when he says, The Son of God is a partaker of the divine nature. Spiritual life, like all other life, carries with it the particular powers belonging to its own nature. Every kind of life has its own particular powers, senses, instincts, or whatever they may be called. Vegetable life has its power, enabling it to draw nutrition out of the ground. Fish life has power adapting it to an existence in the water. Animal life has powers or senses suitable to its sphere of existence, such as seeing, hearing, tasting, and the like. Human life has faculties, emotions, loves, and hatreds suitable to its manner of existence, and it has its own peculiar destiny. It goes back to God, to be judged as to its conduct when its earthly career terminates. And the spiritual life of which we are speaking has powers or faculties necessary to the maintenance of its existence and to the discharge of the duties appropriate to the sphere in which it moves. For instance, it has powers to draw from God the nourishment it requires. It has powers to see or discern spiritual things. It has powers to distinguish holy people. It has powers to love truth and to hate falsehood. It has powers to suffer and sacrifice for the good of others. It has powers to know and love and glorify its Maker. Those possessed of this spiritual life, like all other beings, act according to their nature. For instance, the tree grows in the woods and bears leaves and fruit after its own nature. The bird flies in the air, builds its nest, and sings its song after its own nature. The wild beasts roam through the forest and rage and devour according to their own nature. If you are to make these or any other creatures act differently, you must give them a different nature. By distorting the tree or training the animal or clipping the wings of the bird, you may make some trifling and temporary alteration in the condition or conduct of these creatures. But when you have done this, left to themselves, they will soon revert to their original nature. By way of illustration, a menagerie recently paid a visit to a northern town. Amongst the exhibits was a cage labeled The Happy Family, containing a lion, a tiger, a wolf, and a lamb. When the keeper was asked confidentially how long a time these animals had lived thus peacefully together, he answered, about ten months. But, he said, with a twinkle in his eye, the lamb has to be renewed occasionally. As with these forms of life, so with men and women and children. The only way to secure conduct of a lasting character, different from its nature, 
is by effecting a change in that nature. Make them new creatures in Christ Jesus, and you will have a Christ-like life. The presence of the powers natural to spiritual life constitutes the only true and sufficient evidence of its possession. The absence of these powers shows conclusively the absence of the life. If a man does not love God and walk humbly with him, if he does not long after holiness, love his comrades, and care for souls, it will be satisfying evidence that he has gone back to the old nature, that is, to spiritual death. All spiritual life is not only imparted by Jesus Christ, but sustained by direct union with him. I am the vine, he says, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me ye can do nothing. John 15, verse 6. Nothing will make up for the lack of this life. This indeed applies to every kind of existence. You cannot find a substitute for life in the vegetable kingdom. Try the trees in the garden. Look at that dead apple tree. As you see it there, it is useless, ugly, fruitless. What will make up for the absence of life? Will the digging or the manuring of the ground around it do this? No, that will be all in vain. If it is dead, there is only one remedy, and that is to give it life, new life. Take the animal world. What can you do to make up for the lack of life in a dog? I read the other day of a lady who had a pet dog. She loved it to distraction. It died. Whatever could she do with it to make up for its loss of life? Well, she might have preserved it, stuffed it, jeweled its eyes, and painted its skin. But had she done so, these things would have been a disappointing substitute. So she buried it and committed suicide in her grief and was buried by its side. Take the loss of human life. What is the use of a dead man? Go to the death chamber. Look at that corpse. The loved ones are distracted. What can they do? They may dress it, adorn it, appeal to it, but all that human skill and effort can conceive will be in vain. All that broken hearts can say or do must soon terminate, as did Abraham's mourning for Sarah when he said, Give me a piece of land that I may bury my dead out of my sight. Nothing can make up for the lack of life. But this is specially true of the spiritual life of which we are speaking. Take this in its application to a core. If you want an active, generous, fighting, daredevil core, able and willing to drive hell before it, that core must be possessed, and that fully, by this spirit of life. Nothing else can effectively take its place. No education, learning, Bible knowledge, theology, social amusements, or anything of the kind will be a satisfactory substitute. The core that seeks to put any of these things in the place of life will find them a mockery, a delusion, and a snare. will find them to be only the wraps and trappings of death itself. And if it is so in the core, 
it is so ten thousand times more in the officer who commands that corps in you spiritual life is the essential root of every other qualification required by a salvation army officer with it he will be of unspeakable interest he will be a pleasure to himself there is an unspeakable joy in having healthy exuberant life he will be of interest to those about him who cares about dead things dead flowers throw them out dead animals eat them dead men bury them dead and dying officers take them away give them another core if he is living he will be of interest to all about him men with humble abilities if full of this spiritual life will be a charm and a blessing wherever they go look at the lives and writings of such humble men as billy bray carvoso and hodgson kassan their memory is an ointment poured forth today after long years have passed away without this life an officer will be of no manner of use no matter how he may be educated or talented without life is to be without love and to be without love the apostle tells us is to be only as a sounding brass but it is not that of which i want to speak just now spiritual life is essential to the preservation of life the first thing life does for its possessor is to lead him to look after its own protection when the principle of life is strong you will have health and longevity when it is weak you have disease when it is extinct you have decay and rottenness only vigorous spiritual life will enable a salvation army officer to effectively discharge the duties connected with his position life is favorable to activity it is so with all life go into the tropical forests and see the exuberant growth of everything there look at the foliage the blossom the fruit look at the reptiles crawling at your feet and take care they do not sting you look at the birds chattering and fluttering on the trees and they will charm you look at the animals roving through the woods and take care they do not devour you contrast all this movement with the empty barren silent polar regions or the dreary treeless sands of the african desert go and look at the overflowing tireless activity of the children why are they never still it is the life that is in them go to the man at work with what glee and for what a trifling remuneration he sweats and lifts and carries the ponderous weights go to the soldier in the military war how he shouts and sings as he marches to deprivations and wounds and death even so with spiritual life it never rests it never tires it always sees something great to do and is always ready to undertake it what is the explanation how can we account for it the answer is life abundant life it is only by the possession of life that the salvation army officer can spread this life that is reproduce himself multiply himself or his kind this reproduction or multiplication of itself is a characteristic of all life take the vegetable kingdom every living plant has life-producing seed 
or some method of reproducing itself. The thistle, who can count the number of plants that one thistle can produce in a year? One hundred strawberry plants can be made in ten years to produce more than a thousand million other strawberry plants. Take the animal kingdom. Here, each living creature has this reproductive power. They say that a pair of sparrows would in ten years, if all their progeny could be preserved, produce as many birds as there are people on the earth. That is, 1.5 billion. Ye are of more value than many sparrows. Just so, this spiritual life is intended to spread itself through the world. It is to this end it is given to you. God's command to Adam was be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. How much more does this command apply to you and to me? You are to be progenitors of a world of men and women possessed of spiritual life, the parents of a race of angels. How this is to be done is another question. About that I shall have something to say as we go along. For the moment I am simply occupied with the fact that you have to call this world of holy beings into existence by spreading this life. Every officer here is located in a world of death. Sometimes we style it a dying world, and so it is on its human side. But on its spiritual side it is past dying. It is dead. By that I do not mean that the spiritual nature, that is, the soul, ever ceases to be in any man. That will never come to pass. Perhaps nothing once created will ever cease to be. Anyway, man is immortal. The soul can never die. Neither do I mean that there is no spiritual life. By spiritual death we mean that the soul is separated from God, no union with him. In a blind man the organ may be perfect, but not connected. Inactive. No love for the things God loves. No hatred for the things he hates. Dead to his interests, his kingdom. Dead to him. Corrupt, bad, devilish, etc. What a valley of dry bones the world appears to the man whose eyes have been opened to see the truth of things. Verily, verily, it is one great cemetery crowded with men, women, and children, dead in trespasses and sin. Look for a moment at this graveyard, in which the men around you may be said to lie with their hearts all dead and cold to Christ, and all that concerns their salvation. Look at it. The men and women and children in your town are buried there. The men and women in your city, in your street, Nay, the very people who come to your hall to hear you talk on a Sunday night are there. There they lie. Let us read the inscriptions on some of their tombs. Here lies Tom Jones. He had a beautiful nature, and a young virtuous wife, and some beautiful children, all starved and wretched through their father's selfish ways. He can't help himself. He says so. He has proved it. He is dead in drunkenness. Here lies Harry Please Yourself. Mad on footballing, theaters, music halls, dances, and the like. Nothing else morning, noon, or night seems to interest him. There he is, dead in pleasure. 
Here lies James' haughtiness. Full of high notions about his abilities, or his knowledge, or his family, or his house, or his fortune, or his business, or his dogs, or something. There he is, dead in pride. Here lies Jane Featherhead, absorbed in her hats and gowns and ribbons and companions and attainments. There she is, dead in vanity. Here lies Miser Grassball, taken up with his money, sovereigns, dollars, francs, kroner, much or little. Let me have more and more, is his dream and his cry and his aim by night and day. There he is, dead in covetousness. Here lies Skeptical Doubtall, hunting through the world of nature and revolution, and providence and specially through the dirty world of his own dark little heart, for arguments against God and Christ in heaven. There he is, dead in infidelity. Here lies Jeremiah Make-Believe, with his Bible class and singing choir and Sunday religion and heartless indifference to the salvation or damnation of the perishing crowds at his door. There he is, dead in formality. Here lies surly bad blood, packed full of suspicions and utter disregards for the happiness and feelings of his wife, family, neighbors, or friends. There he is, dead in bad tempers. Here lies Dives Enjoy Yourself. Look at his marble tomb, and golden coffin, and embroidered shroud, and ermine robes. This is a man whose every earthly want is supplied. Carriages, music, friends. There he is, dead in luxury. Here lies Dick Neverfear. His mouth is filled with laughter and his heart with contempt when you speak to him about his soul. He has no anxiety, not he. He'll come off all right, never fear. Is not God merciful? And did not Christ die? And did not his mother pray? Don't be alarmed. God won't hurt him. There he is, dead in presumption. End of section 32, part 1 Recording by Tom Hirsch.